Are you between a rock and a hard place? Are you not sure if you're a sinner or a saint? Do you think you've lost your salvation? Let me take you to the New King James Version. In the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, and Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Welcome to Save the Lost at All Costs. Hosted by Save the Lost at All Costs, Inc. Featuring your sister in Christ and humble servant of the Lord, Nina S. Griffin. Hello, friends. Welcome to Save the Lost at All Costs. I am your host, Susan Parham. I am returning today with the question, what is true conversion? And this is going to be part two. So call your friends, call your family, call your enemies. Tell them join in to Save the Lost at All Costs. We started off last week with the question, what is true conversion? And how and when is one converted? Is it sudden, immediate, or is it a gradual process? According to Google Web definition, it says that conversion is the act or an instance of converting or the process of being converted a change or changing transformation or metamorphosis. I learned that to convert is to change from one character type or purpose to another. In the in the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated converted, I found out means to turn back or to return. It is also translated restore, as you find in Psalms chapter 23, verse 3, he restores my soul. By the way, I will be quoting scriptures from the New King James Version. So, since the picture the Bible paints for us, the word convert is to return to what we were initially created to be. Last week, we mentioned that the fall of mankind and that every human has been born with a sinful nature. And that our nature, our sinful nature, has the tendency to want to only please ourselves rather than God. Humanity attempts to be good, but each time will fall far short of the perfection of God, according to Romans chapter 3, Verse 10, which says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We learned last week that we cannot please God through our own efforts. And we are destined for eternal separation from him, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which declares that for the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is also confirmed in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And another declaration in John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18, it states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 17, for God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And also, I'm going to add verse 18. It says, he who believes in him, meaning Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. So as we continue to uh, lay the foundation going into part two of what is true conversion, we understand that we cannot convert ourselves. And that is why Jesus came to earth, died in our place, rose again to conquer death and sin, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus, he took the punishment of our sin that we deserve. He offers to trade his perfection for our imperfection so that we can be seen as righteous before God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I come to learn through the scriptures that when we admit our help lessness apart from Christ, we are all ready, we are ready to embrace him as Savior and Lord, Acts 3 and 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and Romans 10, 9 helps us to understand that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus, hallelujah, and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Conversion happens when we trade our old sin nature for the nature Christ provides. Come to learn that when we humble ourselves, when we confess our sin, when we turn away from it and we seek God's way, our entire perspective begins to change. We learn that the Holy Spirit moves into our spirit, transforms our entire way of life according to our memory verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent, 
Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we have another friend in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you was brought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belongs to God. Friends, we are converted. We are restored to the relationship God intended us to have with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So let's understand that conversion changes the human heart from sinfulness to righteousness from hell-bound to heaven-bound. Conversion begins in the heart, and it radiates outward to affect everything we think, say, or do. James chapter 2, verse 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Merely stating that conversion has occurred does not make itself. Real conversion, real true conversion, friends, is obviously as a person switches direction, changes allegiance, and moves from self-worship to God-worship. As the heart is transformed, the actions follows until the entire life has been converted from sin-filled to God-honoring. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For Jesus, who has died, has been freed from sin. So, friends, when we talk about does God expect overcoming growth, we ask the question, what does that mean? How is it done? What role does the Holy Spirit play? What about faith and repentance? These were questions that we answered on last week. We explained that God gives his spirit at baptism, which takes place after repentance. But how is repentance achieved? Does one just declare by simple assertion, I have repented? Is there all there is to it? The answer is, as we learn, an emphatic no. It is not that simple. Repentance is a gift from God. People must seek God and ask for the gift of repentance. Remember, we were encouraged to read and pray our Psalms chapter 51, which declares, hallelujah, have mercy upon us, O God, according to your 
love and kindness as we open up the second part of what is true conversion. Father, we begin to pray right now as we come to your throne of grace and mercy, asking that you would have mercy upon us according to your love and kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies. I'm asking that you would black out our transgressions this day. I'm asking that you would wash me and my friends in Las Vegas. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquities. Cleanse us from our sin. We acknowledge our transgressions to you today, Father, and our sin is ever before us. Against you and you only have we sinned and done evil in your sight, that you may be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, remember, Lord, we were shaping in iniquity and in sin our mothers conceived us. You desire truth in our inward parts and in the hidden parts you shall make us to know wisdom. I'm asking on today, Lord, that you would purge us with your hyssop, that we may be clean. I'm asking that you will wash us, that we shall be whiter than snow. Make us hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. I'm asking, Father, through your spirit, hide your face from our sins and blot out our iniquities and create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from us. I'm asking on today that you restore us the joy of our salvation. And I'm asking that you would uphold us by your free spirit. So now, my friends, in Jesus' name we pray. And I pray that the blood of Jesus will continue to cover us and wash us and cleanse us and bring clarity and that the spirit of truth will bring clarity to our minds and hearts today as we go forward in part two, what is true conversion. Today we will be discussing resisting three enemies. We're going to talk about examples from Paul, um, God's perfect character, and, and we're going to talk about what, what about death, what about the unpardonable sin. And prayerfully we'll get to revisiting the parable of the pounds and hallelujah, and what does God look at? So for those who did not get a chance to hear part one, I will encourage you to go to the archives of www.savethelostlv.org. Click on radio broadcast, and there you will find part one, what is true conversion. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, as we continue to move on with the help of your Holy Spirit, we pick up with that, with the question, is the, con- is the Christian path easy? Is becoming Christ-like in character the proverbial cakewalk? And we answered the question, definitely not. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Christ helps us to understand that we must enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by in it. Because, hallelujah, in the New Living Translation, it says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. It has always been only the very few who are willing to pay the price to live this difficult way of life. Let's be reminded that Christians run. Running is hard work. Paul himself said, I press toward the mark, 
the prize of the high calling in God, in Christ Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6 and 12 tells us. Lay hold on eternal life, 2 Corinthians 10 and 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are not physical, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Let this word pull down the strongholds of darkness today, Lord. Let this word pull down the strongholds of error today, Lord God. Let this word come and pull down the spirit of the Antichrist. Let it come and pull down, hallelujah, the veil that was on our eyes. Let it be pulled down and ripped away. We learn, we're learning today that Christians are at war on three different fronts. They must be vigilant, not neglecting potential danger from any of these three enemies that we're going to discuss who regularly confront us. It takes humility for a Christian to acknowledge to himself and to God that any one of these adversaries is capable of overwhelming us. Ephesians 6 goes on to describe six pieces of armor that Christians, those who have been converted, must use in this spiritual warfare. Verses 12 to 17, they contain a strong warning not to forget that we are wrestling against wicked spirits in high places. First, the devil and his fallen angels want to defeat and destroy every son of God in the making. If you are begotten of God, you are a son of God, carrying enormous potential for rulership. The devil hates the prospect that you can receive what he has not been offered, which is membership in God's family. He lies and wait like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. But he cannot defeat the vigilant, those who resist. Christian, converted, hallelujah, true believer in God must continually beware of and resist the enemy's attitudes creeping into their mind. Second, the Bible says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in wickedness. That is a very strong indictment on mankind. Yet there is in our scriptures the holy writ. The Christian must also resist the pull of this world with all its glitter, excitement, attractiveness, and temptations. There is not... Hallelujah. This is not God's world. The Bible declares, the word of God declares that the God of this world has fashioned it. The true God is not the author of confusion. The true author, the true God is not, the true God is not ignorant and misery that permeates all of the many cultures and societies of this world. There are many temptations, traps, pitfalls into which the true Christian, those that are truly converted, can easily fall if he or she is not close to God, living by every word in the word. Matthew 4 and 4, Jesus himself said, Man, 
woman, boy and girl, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Luke 4 and 4 also declares, it is written, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul instructed the Ephesian elders that God's word is able to build us up and to give us an inheritance, salvation, eternal life, according to Acts 20, verse 32. Study it for yourself. Third, Studying God's word will help us overcome the pulls of our flesh. Paul said for us to be, for us, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He also added that they are in the flesh, they that are in the flesh, excuse me, cannot please God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 8, Christians are still made of flesh, but are no longer in the flesh because he has God's spirit leading him. Left unchecked, human nature consists of vanity, jealousy, lust, greed, envy, resentment, hatred, anger, pride, rebellion, foolishness, stubbornness, deceit, and hostility towards God. The one who is walking God's path is trying to curb and without himself wherever God's word instructs. He strives to exercise himself in all manners where God instructs. When God gives instructions to do something, he or she strives to do it. When God gives instructions not to do something, that person strives not to do it. My God, while learning to always follow this pattern, it takes a lifetime. Building God's character is the purpose for which every human being was born. His job is to put on the character of God in Christ and to put off the fleshly pulls of human nature. Colossians 3, verses 3 to 13. Though this is not easy, the reward is. Is great. Only through regular prayer, Bible study, meditation, and even occasional fasting, going without food and water for a period of time, will the child of God be able to overcome these three foes that lie in wait for him or her every day of our life. In the scriptures, they are filled with stories of God's great servants battling to overcome sin. In nearly every case, they had to learn difficult and sometimes very painful lessons. When examined collectively, Moses, Noah, David, Samuel, Peter, and many others are seen to have fought every kind of problem known to man. Paul represents a classic example of how one of God's greatest servants fought to overcome sin. At the end of his life, he was able to say that he had fought the good fight of faith and that he had run his course. 
knowing that a crown awaits him. But this did not happen without much wrestling, pressing, running, fighting, and warring against human nature. When we read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 all the way to 23, it will educate and encourage us that we are not alone on our path to overcoming the evil one, overcoming society, and overcoming our own selfish desires. In those scriptures, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, physical, made of flesh, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would that do, I not, but what I hate that I do. He continued by saying, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not do, that I do. My God. It was as though whatever Paul did or did not want to do, his human flesh, his nature, caused him to do exactly the opposite. Lord, have mercy. God inspired him to record the answer for us. I find in a law that I would try to do good evil is present with me. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, verses 21 and 23. Paul went on to add that only through the power of Christ, mine, in him, was able to overcome and obtain final victory in keeping the law of God. Instead of obeying the real law of sin, only in this way could Paul later say that he had fought the good fight and that he had run his course to victory. Friends, make no mistake, Christianity is all out war. It is a war that the Christians should expect to win. As long as he or she continues to draw close to God to obtain strength for overcoming. God looks on the intent of our hearts. It is our overall desire and motivation that is important to him. He wants to know if after you sin, are you sorry for it? And are always determined to strive to do better? He understands that temptations lead us, and some of these temptations are what we call besets us even better than we do. God watches to see if we will be sober and vigilant as we root sin out of our lives and whether we will continually to press on. God's perfect character, the all-powerful God, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elohim, the one who made the heavens and the earth, also made us. The physical universe was merely created to reflect the glory of God who made it and to be a beautiful gift for mankind to see and enjoy. We were created for an infinitely greater purpose. We were created to become like God, to build perfect, holy, righteous character. But God is actually reproducing himself in people, not just any old people, but a person who has been truly converted. Just as we are the children of parents and possibly have children of our own, God, he is our parent. He is our Abba. He is our father. As we physically look like our parents, our children look like us. God wants us to look like him in spiritual character. Really anyone do really any more do people even talk about or concern themselves with the development of character, once called virtue. It seems that so few people today understand much about it. Only through God's revealed word is the right definition of character described and understood. Character is understanding, knowing right from wrong, and doing what is right instead of what is wrong. God reveals what is right, how to live. But righteous character is built through the power of free moral agencies deciding to do what is right. Like any muscle of the body, character is built by pushing against resistance, thus strengthening the muscle, in this case, strengthening the mind, undergoing the resistance. Character chooses to do what is right instead of choosing to do what is wrong. We're talking about true conversion. And my name is Susan Parham from Randallstown, Maryland, as your host today. It does not concern itself with what others say or do. It only concerns itself with what God says to do. Friends, God is love. And love is the fulfilling of the law. It is outgoing, outflowing, concern for others, putting them first, ahead of the entrance of self. Consistently remind yourself that to build the very character of God is the reason we were born. Recall that Paul said God's spirit reflects a sound mind. Even on the human level, few people today any longer have much common sense. It seems harder than ever to remain balanced and stable as pressures and stresses surround the people and cause them to do more things than are unsound, strange, and even bizarre. God's Spirit will lead us into stable, steady, sound ways of thinking. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. It will help us see the things going on around us and react to them in a godly manner. It will settle our understanding and lead us to make wise, right, and sound decisions in everyday life. 
if we apply ourselves, if we push ourselves to grow and overcome, do not expect it to be easy. Trust me, not easy. Like falling off a log. Grow in knowledge. Once converted, recognize that you have been chosen to be a soldier and must sometimes endure hardness. As Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, breaking all your old habits will take time. After all, you have practiced and, in a sense, even refined them over a lifetime. Your habits have become part of you. They are second nature. However, remember that they are not the divine nature. Second Peter verse one and four that entered that entered you with the receiving of God's spirit at baptism and conversion. Friends, if you're an adult, it took you fifteen to twenty years just to grow to a certain height. Christianity is no different. This is a long time, and it has probably included uh, many growing pains probably fell, skinned your knee, blooded your nose many times before you reached adulthood. Christianity is no different. Do not become discouraged, friends. Don't quit growing. Any more than a child should become discouraged and quit life simply because he had fallen down and skinned the knee. When your children fall, you tell him or her, get up, because it's part of life. Christianity is no different. Little children always want to grow up faster than life's timetable allows. Though childhood is wonderful in so many ways, it seems that most young people cannot wait for adulthood. Christianity is no different. But full mature Christian adulthood only comes after a long period of practicing the right way of life. But what if one says, what if the converted child of God sin. The Bible says we have established that all human beings sin. Should the newly begotten Christian expect to do to continue at the baptism? Is perfection accrued overnight by a certain profession of faith or by the act of repentance and baptism alone? This is not true. There is one lengthy passage of scripture that is very helpful on this particular subject of forgiveness and related matters. The following verses bear much instructions, but only at the first reading all of them, notice, and truly our fellowship, the Bible says, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, that our joy may be full. This, then, is the message, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not have the truth. But if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. 
The Bible says, my little children, these things write out unto you, that you sin not. And if any man, woman, boy, or girl sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the perpetuation for our sins. First John chapter 1. Reread it in your own spare time. Again, friends, there is much more important instructions here. As we examine this chapter verse by verse, we understand that John, the last living apostle in the Bible, speaking on behalf of all the apostles, he explained that a Christian's true fellowship is on the spiritual plane with Christ and the Father. It is only through them hallelujah, that Christians can have real true fellowship with one another within God's body. Verse 4, Paul said, John, I'm sorry, John's purpose was to show people the source of real permanent fullness of joy. Verse 5, the true God represents light. He's light. There's nothing dark about God. He does and who is. The person fellowshipping with the true God of the Bible wants to come to the light and come out, wants us to come to the light and come out of all the darkness of this world. Verse 6 helps us to know that many people claim to know God, to fellowship with him, but they neither know, they neither know practice. They don't know him. They don't practice the truth. They don't read the scriptures. They don't even try to obey. Verse 7, Christ's blood continues to cleanse us when we make or we make a mistake. Verse 8 helps us to understand that Christians need to acknowledge that they sin. It's been my experience that self-deceit, Jeremiah 17, 9, is the single biggest reason most people do not grow and overcome as they should. Self-deceit. Lying into yourself is still deceit. And there is no place for the truth to dwell in such a person. Verse 9 and 10 tells us not speaking about the unconverted, carnal-minded person. For the one who acknowledges and confesses he is sent. These verses are self-evident. Jesus Christ is there to wash, to clean up the true converted Christian, when he or she has momentarily strayed from the light of living by God's word and law. A Christian must learn to overcome, like learning to play the piano or painting a beautiful picture. This does not happen overnight. And as we venture on into chapter 2, start just chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John uses the endearing term, my little children, because that is how God looks at us. That's how he looks at his begotten children. We are little children in his sight. He knows he needs to watch over us like human parents watch over their own children. And though it is God's intention that we do not sin, when we do, Christ stands before the Father as our advocate, as our high priest. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16 helps us to understand that Jesus, literally, he roots, his roots 
from his young brothers and sisters in the presence of the Father. He understands what it is like to battle with and overcome sin. He understands. He offers us strength. He offers us forgiveness to those who acknowledge that they need both. What about death? Remember, the goal of a Christian is to become like Christ and the Father to become perfect as God is perfect, Matthew 5, verse 48. What if a person dies before perfection has been achieved? Does such a person fall or fail? One lost because he or she did not become completely perfect in this life? No human being will ever become absolutely perfect while still in the flesh. We should always continue to seek to be, strive to be, by Christ through his life. Perfection is a goal that carries with it a way of life that is to govern one's every thought, action, and word. God looks on the heart, the intentions of a person who is yielded to him. As long as he is spiritually growing and overcoming and led by the Holy Spirit, he remains a converted, begotten son of God. Death changes nothing since God is in charge of a Christ of a Christian's life, excuse me. Upon a Christian's death, he merely becomes asleep in Christ. He is awaiting the resurrection of all saints unto the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 55 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be more, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In the New Living Translation, it reads, What am I saying, dear brothers and sisters? Is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what was last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. When the last trump is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And when we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? 
oh death, where is your sting? Now we also understand in First Thessalonians chapter four verses thirteen to eighteen. In the New Living Translation, it says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from the grave. Verse 17, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. And verse 18 says, so encourage each other with these words. I'm encouraging you today with these words. Friends, so many people worry that they may commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin involves willful, deliberate, premeditated, sin-based on a clear and final decision to commit any kind of sin and to remain in it. The key, the core attitude is willful. Yes, many do sin willingly, but that is far different from sinning willfully. Every time people sin, they are, of course, willing to do what they did. But they were usually overcome by some kind of temptation or circumstance that allowed them to slip. They were soon very sorry for what they had done, while this does not even lessen the seriousness of sin. If one is sorry about his actions and wants to change, wants to repent and to be forgiven, and this is accompanied by the determination to do better, the next time, then he is far from having committed the unpardonable sin. God is merciful and even eager to forgive us upon heartfelt repentance. He says he wants us, he wants you, he wants an I, all those that he calls to succeed. First, Second Peter verse 3 and 9 and First Timothy chapter two verse four will help us to understand this truth. Even though Satan tempts people, hoping for failure, God periodically will test his servants, hoping even expecting for them to succeed. God does not want anyone to fall. So I encourage you, friends, today, Hallelujah, as Solomon wrote, do not give up, do not quit. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small, Proverbs 24 and 10. For a just man, woman, boy, and girl may fall seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Do not ever draw back, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. Christ said, 
But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24, verse 13, and chapter 10, verse 22. Christians are not automatically saved at baptism and conversion. If you fall down, get up. See God, repent, and go on. God will continue to uphold us if we continue to endure. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, I'm thanking you, Lord. As we turn to the final parable that illustrates the Christian responsibility to grow, if he or she is to enter the kingdom of God, in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Christ appeared, com- Christ compared himself to a noble man who went to a far country, a type of joining the Father in heaven, for nearly 2,000 years until his return. The disciples believed that the kingdom would appear immediately. and Christ wanted to illustrate that much time would pass before it did. The nobleman of the parable instructed his servants to increase the worth of a pound, money, that he gave to each of them for investment. The pound actually represents a kind of symbolic unit of basic spiritual worth or value. Remember that it was a parable. So Christ was not referring to any kind of literal money. He told his servants, occupy till I come or grow the pound into more money. While the noble man was gone, several of the servants said, we will not have this man to reign over us. It is vital to understand the intent of this statement. The citizens understood that the nobleman Christ was coming to reign on earth, and they wanted no part of this and rejected his government, his reign over them, and thus the future part, hallelujah, their future part in it. They understood that the kingdom of God would be a government ruling over the earth. Remember, the parable had begun with the nobleman, who was Christ, going to heaven to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Upon the nobleman's return, he called each of the servants into the presence to give him an accounting of how each one had increased the pound that he had been given. Some had gained, hallelujah, five pounds, others ten. But one servant had buried his pound in the ground and produced nothing. Christ wanted to know how much each man had gained while he had been away. One servant had gained ten pounds. He explained his reward, you good servant. Because you've been faithful of a very little, have your authority over ten cities. The servant who had gained five pounds was put over five cities. Because the second servant produced half as much, his reward was half as much. So these men were given authority. They were put into a position of rulership over cities. Their reward was to reign with Christ, Jude 14, in his world-ruling kingdom. The servant was buried, who buried his pound in the napkin had wasted an incredible opportunity to qualify for rulership in the kingdom of God. And he, the noble man, Jesus, said to him, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. This servant had not grown. He had not produced anything with his life, had no qualified for rulership over the cities in the kingdom of God. Christ gave that wicked servant his reward to the one who had gained the 10 pounds so that the latter had even more than the own, his own reward. The cities that this man conducted had caused him to lose what he had to be ruled by someone else. 
Otherwise, they will become abandoned with no ruler assigned authority over them. Friends, no one will be given rulership before they have been proven that they can be ruled. No one can be part of God's world ruling government unless they have learned to submit to the government of God and to be ruled by God and Jesus in this life. This is the all-important lesson of the parable of the pounds. Friends, if you see a Christian doing something wrong, don't sit in judgment and condemn. That's God's business to judge. Let's have compassion and mercy. As long as one in his heart has the real desire to walk God's way with him, is deeply sorry and repentant when he commits the occasional sin and is seeking to overcome sin and to make God's way his habitual way of life, he will, hallelujah, stumble on occasion. But if he confesses it and repents, he will be forgiven. But if he is diligent in his Christian life, hallelujah, what is our attitude when we sin? Friends, remember, once we know we have really repented and been forgiven, don't repeat the sin, but forget it. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. We press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians three thirteen and 14. The Bible has many examples of people who were converted by the grace of God. Paul, who devoted the rest of his life to serving the church, he once tried to destroy it. Friends, God gives us faith to believe in him, but we must receive it and act on it. Exercising that gift of faith results in conversion. Be blessed, my friends, in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our teaching on what is true conversion. Have a blessed day. Amen. It is our humble prayer that the Most High God of all creation and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ continues to bless you and yours without cease for tuning in today and supporting this great move of God with your generous donations. Save the Lost at All Costs is a Holy Spirit field, live called in weekly radio ministry that has been airing since 2005 and serving in the greater Las Vegas community. We can be heard every Sunday at 3.02 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Las Vegas's very own Christian Talk radio stations, 1060 AM and 101.5 FM. Also, we are audio and video streamed in real time during our live broadcast at www.kkvv.com and our website, www.savethelostlv.org. If you would like to re-listen to a previous broadcast at no charge, make an online secure donation, or learn more about our ministry, please visit our website at www.savethelostlv.org. If you prefer, you could mail in a donation. Address it to Save the Lost at All Cost, Inc., P.O. Box number 335852, North Las Vegas, 89033. Again, our P.O. Box number is 335852, North Las Vegas, 89033. All donations made to Save the Lost at All Costs, Inc., 
are 100% tax deductible. For more information, please feel free to call or text us at 702-219-6882. Again, 702-219-6882. We would like to thank you again. Remember to remain in Christ, stay prayed up, tune in, and don't forget to save the lost at all costs, no matter what.